Productions. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life well, I'm really excited uh, about today's podcast. Uh, really overjoyed to welcome uh, Jim Audia, a PhD, uh, who's the Executive Vice President of Drug Discovery and Early Development and a founding scientist at Flare Therapeutics. Welcome to the show, Jim. Uh, Jim uh, has had a distinguished career in the biopharma industry after earning his PhD from the University of South Carolina and then completing his postdoc at Yale University, Jim joined Eli Lilly and Company in 1987, where he served in a variety of R&D positions for 24 years. And Jim played a central role uh, in Lilly's R&D portfolio management and governance, and at the time was one of the most prolific inventors in company history with more than 90 US patents. That number now exceeds 100. So amazing uh, accomplishments over his tenure at Eli, uh, Eli Lilly. Um, but Jim was really just getting started there at Lilly. He then uh, tore into the biotech world, found himself in Boston. Uh, beginning in 2011, he joined the Cambridge-based Constellation Pharmaceuticals. And then more recently, uh, was the head of the Chicago Biomedical Consortium. Um, he remains a member of the SAB, of the Tau Consortium, of the Rainwater Charitable Foundation, and Ribbon Therapeutics and on the board of uh, Ribbon Therapeutics as well. And then uh, just to wrap things up, Jim's an advisor to Karuna Therapeutics, which is a part of Third Rock Ventures, uh, or spun out of Third Rock Ventures where Jim's an entrepreneur in residence. Um, he's still a scientist at heart. He's an adjunct professor in the Department of Medicinal Chemistry and Pharmacognosy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, um, and sits on a number of other scientific and philanthropic boards here in Chicago. So again, Jim, welcome to the, to the show. It's a real pleasure and an honor to get to have a conversation with you today. Thanks, John. Really happy to be here. And we're also delighted to uh, once again wel welcome in our Chicago Biomedical Consortium Entrepreneurial Fellows. And I'm going to ask if we could briefly go around and um, provide brief introductions. And the way we'll carry out this conversation on the podcast will be to, to dive into the Jim's journey, um, try to learn a little bit more about uh, his pathway, some of the challenges and and high points of, of his journey and and learn along the way as to as to uh, what he found to be you know the, the path to to today and what the opportunities could be in the future for um, the next generation of, of scientists and professionals in the biotech field. Um, but first, why don't we go around the table and uh, introduce ourselves if we could? Hey everyone, my name is Shanad Dorazan. I'm one of the entrepreneurial fellows, and I'm happy to be with you all today. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Sokolowski. I'm also one of the Entrepreneurial Fellows. Also excited to be here. Hi, my name is Elon Neskone. Unsurprisingly, one of the Entrepreneurial Fellows and excited <laughs> to be here. Welcome. And finally, I'm Amanda Maldonado, and you guessed it, another Entrepreneurial Fellow. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Well, we're, we're excited to have everyone in the room today, and uh, why don't we get, get underway? Jim, um, one, one thing I'd like to kind of get at is just you know, as you, as you got on the path, you know, to where you currently are, particularly kind of trained as a scientist, um, back when you were a kid, was that always what you planned on doing? What, what brought you into the field to begin with? And talk a little bit about some of your early inspirations. Yeah, uh, it's a great question, John. Uh, I do remember having a chemistry set when I was, was a kid. And, and back then, uh, I don't think they had all the OSHA regulations. So we actually had real chemicals in our chemistry sets and could do experiments. And I remember doing, you know, oxidations with potassium dichromate and, you know, just, you know, playing around. Uh, I, I liked the fact that science was very tangible, right? You could make something happen. You could learn something. You could figure out uh, how the world works in some fashion. And I think that's been, you know, that scientific curiosity has, you know, has been a component of, of you know, my entire journey. Even when I was an undergrad, I started out pre-med, uh, but 
got fascinated with chemistry because I think I was better with chemistry than I was with people, right? And so uh, the I think the patients were uh, a little intimidating, but I felt like I could have a bigger impact focusing on you know, on the on the pure science aspect of it, then and and hopefully I've had a you know an impact on patients through the chemistry as opposed to just being a you know a primary care physician or something of that sort. And you know, any untoward experiments that you can talk about as a child that maybe um, your parents regretted getting you that chemistry set? Uh, I don't know about with the chemistry set, but I did <laughs> almost. I, I was. Maybe it's related to chemistry. Uh, cooking, I think when I was, you know, four or five years old, I very nearly set the house on fire <laughs> by uh, turning the potatoes on to cook when my mother was downstairs doing laundry. And so she came upstairs just in time to, to see the, the fire getting started. So, uh that was a, a near miss. Oh, and they still got you the chemistry set after that. And, Is that that I, came after? And I still got the chemistry set. <laughs> despite. That's great. That's yeah. great. Well, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, then you kind of, what got you on that path? It sounds like early on you had ambitions to be a physician treating patients, but then you kind of said to yourself, I, I really enjoy the deeper science. And in your case, you know, really applying the the chemistry what were some of the things that then ultimately you know guided you in your research fellowship kind of was there an area of uh of chemistry that was a particular interest to you as you uh, pursued some of your doctoral work you know I think it goes back to this you know I, I gravitated towards synthetic organic chemistry because you you made things right you know you it's a it's a very creative act when you're doing synthesis, making a compound that's never been made or only been made in nature. And so, you know, bringing new molecules into existence, you know, was was fascinating being able to, you know, being able to manipulate things that you can't actually see Uh you know, something, you know, and I think this has been a, an ongoing reward. You have an idea, you run an experiment to bring that idea into existence, and then you get to see the consequences. And when you extend that into drug discovery, you know, it's the ultimate reward because a molecule that you designed to do to subserve a specific function, and then ultimately you get one that does fulfill those requirements, and it progresses to become a drug that ben, you know, ultimately benefits a patient. I mean, there's it's like that's the coolest thing ever, right? When you've got a patient whose whose disease is treated or heaven forbid cured by a molecule that you conceived of, I mean, and we get paid for this? I mean, yeah. you know, what what could be more satisfying? What could be more more gratifying than uh than being able to you know, to advance a therapeutic toward Toward human benefit. Well, and but when you think about synthetic organic chemistry, it can be applied in many different fields, right? So it does seem to me that you always kind of gravitated back toward at the end of the day, you were trying to help a patient with some of your things that you'd made, like you said, synthetically, but ultimately you were trying to get a, a drug to, to a patient. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was commenting to the fellows before we started the podcast that, you know, a, a theme that I wanted to get across is, you know, is is gratitude. Right. We're we're extremely fortunate to get to do what we do. And a component of it is working on important enough problems that are actually worth solving. Right. And there are a lot of important problems, but human health you know, treatment of disease is is up there among the most important problems. And then getting to work with 
smart people and getting to work in wonderful environments and having resources to be able to apply to the solution to those problems. But ultimately, you want to focus on a problem that's worth solving. And I think bettering human health is a problem that's worth solving. And that's been an important one for for me. And when you uh, kind of had a choice as you left your postdoctoral fellowship at Yale, what were some of your considerations and, and ultimately what led you to join Eli Lilly and go down that pathway? I would imagine that um, like other postdocs, academia may have been a potential pathway. Oftentimes it can be a consideration. What led you to join Eli Lilly at that time? Yeah, uh, it, it's a great question. And so I had a, you know, my postdoc advisor, Sam Danishevsky, encouraged me to to go academic. And, you know, I think Sam always said, well, you know, I get more credit if you go academic as opposed to industry. But, you know, I got fascinated with with the concept of doing drug discovery, of doing medicinal chemistry, and felt like if I went into academia, I had to do an awful lot of of building of collaborations in order to do drug discovery, right? Drug discovery is not a one-man show. It takes a lot of different skills, knowledge, expertise, and resources to bring a drug to patients. And I recognize that I can make a contribution in that space, but it's not something I could do on my own. And so if I went into academia, I was going to have to spend a lot of time and energy building the network, building the series of collaborations in order to do it. Whereas in pharma, I could simply plug into that infrastructure that already existed and focus on the problem at hand. Right. And so I think that that decision was relatively easy for me to make. The harder decision was picking Lilly over Merck and Pfizer and Abbott and Sibagaygi uh, and SmithKline French. All of those were opportunities that I had. And I'd set up all of these criteria that I was going to use to evaluate the various companies and found that every one of these companies met all of my criteria. And so it's like, well, the criteria are kind of useless in that regard. And so ultimately I chose Lilly because I personalized it and said, okay, I'm going to pick one or two people at each company that I think A, embody all the best that that company has to offer. And then ask, you know, how how available are they going to be to mentor me, to help me grow, to collaborate with me? And, uh, and what I found was that Lilly really stood out. There were a couple of scientists there that I respected, I admired, and I felt like I'd have an opportunity to learn from them. And it turns out that you know, one of them, Homer Pierce, was actually my my lab mate, right? He, I got to share a lab with him, and Jeff Halbert was right down the hall. And those are the two people that I thought, you know what, if I could grow up to be like them, I'd consider myself pretty successful. And that turned out to be a, a really good basis for making for making the decision. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool background and context. And then, you know, can you share... First, uh, for the audience, what is medicinal chemistry? What does that mean? And then second, what was it like, you know, as you kind of charted your path in those early days at Lilly, and what led to your kind of first breakthrough kind of lead that you took in, you know, beyond kind of where your hands were and towards and into the clinic. Can you talk a little bit about sure. those two things? Yeah. I mean, medicinal chemistry is really the the science of the design, synthesis, and evaluation of chemical compounds that have the potential to be therapeutics, that have the potential to be drugs. Lily has a really interesting 
model or certainly had back in 1987 when I joined them. They had a very entrepreneurial model where uh, it was a bottom-up organization in that a chemist needed to find a biologist with whom to collaborate. And you didn't get assigned a project. You had to generate a project. And I joined Lilly in the neuroscience group at a at a wonderful time. This is the late 80s. This was really the beginning of, you know, of of modern psychiatric uh, drug discovery. I got a chance to collaborate with Ray Fuller, with David Leander, with David Nelson, Marlene Cohen, David Wong, the folks who who brought drugs to the market like Prozac, like Olanzapine, you know, really discovering the first of the modern pharmacological agents. And so I collaborated with with Marlene Cohen on agents that would antagonize the rat stomach fundus serotonin receptor. It turns out that this is the 5-HT2B receptor. And David Nelson and I ended up targeting 5-HT2B antagonists for the treatment of, of migraine. We, that was the first clinical development compound that I brought forward out of my lab. We had a collaboration with Synaptic Pharmaceuticals trying to do molecular discovery in the serotonergic space. And so I collaborated with Terry Branchick to discover the first agonists or activators of the 5-HT1F receptor. And again, we found a connection with activation of 5-HT1F mediated signaling, uh, again, in in interrupting the migraine episode. And so uh, we were able to bring forward a development candidate as a 1F agonist. As you're as you're developing these this drug and this process, were there any challenges you faced internally within Eli Lilly, or like hurdles that you saw? Uh, I mean, I think I think drug discovery is is a series of challenges, right? Uh, make a little analogy. We we went up to Sleeping Bear Dunes, right, up in in Michigan, and climbed the dunes and decided we were going to walk to the lake. And it looks like all you have to do is cross the next dune and you get to the lake. But every time you go down and go up the next dune, you see there's another dune and there's another and there's another. That's what drug discovery is all about, right? You see the challenge that's in front of you. You, you know, you overcome that challenge only to reveal the next challenge and the next challenge and the next challenge. You know, we had uh, worked in Alzheimer's for a number of years. We brought forward, you know, first a gamma secretase inhibitor and had compounds that very potently suppressed the gamma secretase cleavage of the amyloid precursor protein to produce A beta and then revealed a challenge that another substrate of gamma secretase is notch. And so by inhibiting gamma secretase, you you inhibited notch processing and notch signaling, which is critical for the differentiation of a variety of different cell types. And so we created a toxicity that was unrelated to what we were trying to do, but you're responsible for everything the molecule does, not just what you're trying to do. And so, uh, particularly when you're doing first in class, you're learning all the time and you're learning about what the molecule does and how that applies to the therapeutic application, but also what it does in normal physiology outside of what your intended application is. If you could talk about the difference between the golden age of pharma 
Um, and and kind of, I, I don't want to say the ascendancy of biotech, but obviously there were some issues that sort of, you know, promulgated the biotech model that we think about today. And maybe as a bird's eye view, you can talk about what those were and how that transition occurred. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, let's face it, pharma did a lot of things right to produce drugs, but 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 doing the fundamental research, discovering a drug, doing the early development, the late development, and the commercialization, that's a lot of different businesses, right? And when you've got a fully integrated pharmaceutical company, the balance of primacy of any one of those functions and how you make decisions across that is really challenging. And I think Lilly and other big pharma, I think, struggled with being good all the way across that landscape. And so I think as the industry matured and evolved, breaking it down into smaller bite-sized chunks that could focus on one aspect of it. And you could do that one aspect potentially better than you can do the whole enterprise is at least one way of thinking about why the biotech industry, right? You get these early biotechs, and to a great extent, they don't have to worry about commercialization, right? You get an early stage biotech, and they're only about the discovery portfolio. And so I don't have to balance priorities between discovery you know, early discovery, late discovery, early development, late development, commercialization. I can only focus and really be good at this. And then I can I can monetize what I've done well by selling it or partnering it or turning it over to someone who's more specialized and more skilled in some of those other areas, right? I think that's at least a simplistic way, but one element of of how the industry has has evolved. Well, and the other thing alongside of that, you know, from a scientific perspective, and maybe it's a good segue to kind of talk about, you know, your, you know, amazing success and being very prolific, you know, within big pharma, but then taking the step toward, you know, going to a small emerging biotechnology company, the business model differences that you've described for example, at Constellation Pharmaceuticals. Maybe you can talk about the differences sure. and your experiences, kind of your, the, what, what the, what's the right way, the right, you know, the pros and cons of each scenario. I mean, a large pharma company has a lot of resources and, and depth and that camaraderie you talked about, whereas a small emerging company, it's, it's thinner, but can be more focused in one, one given area. Um, but, so at the same time that you're, as you think about the evolution of the biotech industry in terms of being disruptive in terms of the business model, the science was also changing too. I mean, biotech and large pharma um, being now challenged by and partnering then with biotechnology companies that were focusing on monoclonal antibodies and using biology as opposed to, to chemistry. Just maybe talk a little bit about that dichotomy of the of the biotech science and the biotech business model and your experiences going from large to emerging. Yeah, it's a pretty complicated question, John. Let me see if I can unravel. Do a you few, want me to uh, slow no, down? A, a few components of it. <laughs> you know, my motivation for uh, for moving to biotech was a little bit of a journey of self-discovery, right? I'd been very successful within Lilly. You know, I put 15 compounds into the clinic. I'd, you know, my career there had exceeded my own expectations. And so I asked myself, you know, what is it I want to 
what is it I want to do? I actually had an interesting conversation with the head of HR who asked me if I wanted to think about becoming head of of process chemistry at Lilly. And I said, why would I want to do that? And she said, well, you know, maybe to do something different. And I said, well, Terry, if I wanted to do something different, I'd go back to the lab. And, you know, and and that kind of that moment was in order for me to advance at Lilly, I needed a broader administrative responsibility, right? I'd had a peak where I had, you know, 600 people that I was accountable for and a pretty substantial budget. But what I really enjoyed was the the actual science, getting involved in the design of the molecule, the design of the experiment, the execution. And so, you know, I I looked at at biotech as an opportunity to to get back to the science and also to ask myself the question, you know, was my success only a product of being a good fit for the Lilly system or could it be translated out of that hmm. into the wild, right? Could mm-hmm. I could I apply it in a completely different context? And and so that was that was a lot of of my motivation. The second thing is that you know, a big difference between big pharma and you know, a uh, an early stage biotech uh, is that you get to be intimately involved in everything. You know, when I was at Lilly, I was one of of 40,000 employees at this large multinational company. And so you you rarely do anything on your own in a big company like that. There are all kinds of support functions and various checks and balances. When I went to join Constellation, I got to be the primary decision maker on a number of questions where at Lilly, I might make that decision or I might assist in that decision, but there were going to be 20 other people who were going to be weighing in. And so it was an opportunity for me to, you know, to test my skills, you know, operate without a net. The second thing was- And learn in in many ways too. Right. And the second thing was that, and and I can remember uh, giving a presentation to the Constellations Board of Directors. And Steve Paul, who I'd worked with at Lilly, was a board director at Constellation. And Steve made a comment after one of our scientific presentations, you could never have done this in big pharma. You know, we had a very different threshold for risk, right? We could take scientific risks within biotech that Pharma would never have taken. Pharma wanted things to be much more certain before they would make the investment. We could be on the cutting edge. And so we were leading the way in the science as opposed to following the the clinically validated pathways. And so I, I do think it was an exciting time. And I think that's a key component of of biotech today is that they can ask questions that are, you know, really more provocative, earlier stage, you know, not as not as certain what the answers are going to be. And one of the things that frustrates me when I look at either biotech or academic research is when I see when I see the lack of novelty or the lack of imagination and biotech going for 
targets that are safe, even relative to big pharma. I feel like we should be out there on the cutting edge asking questions that haven't already been answered 11 times and really pushing the envelope on the science. Yeah. And do you think that biotech companies by that, you know, very fact that they need to be more nimble, they need to be kind of on the cutting edge, they need to be closer to the creative science. Um, does that put them closer to academic researchers than a, than a large farm? What, what was your experience kind of interacting as a Lilly scientist with academia versus, you know, as the head of discovery for a biotech company and academia? Was, is that a fair question? Meaning, how close, are you closer in biotech to kind of cutting edge academic science with the freedom to operate in that regard? Or, or is that just maybe a, a perception? I mean, clearly in biotech, uh, our relationships with academics are, are closer, right? I think at Lilly, our innovative collaborations were with early stage biotechs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I got some of my first exposure with Synaptic who had you know, gone and and cloned all 14 of the human serotonin receptors. And so they were doing cutting edge research. We wanted to apply that. I collaborated with Athena Neuroscience, a company that was founded based on some of Dennis Selko's amyloid work. And so we got to work with some of the, the leading minds there, uh, you know, thinking about Alzheimer's disease and the the pathophysiology and the and the genetics. And so interesting, you know, did get exposed to leading academics, but it was typically indirectly Through the as opposed to, you know, directly, you know, got to collaborate with David Russell at UT Southwestern to discover you know, uh, a novel isoform of the steroid 5-alpha reductase enzyme. And, you know, he discovered it genetically. We discovered a small molecule inhibitor and then reconciled those two uh, to produce a drug candidate. So, 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 so. interesting. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. How much does investment play a role in what pharmacy companies decide to pursue? Because I can assume, you know, academics only have to talk to their grant funders and, you know, they might be able to go into these type of cutting edge research. And not only that, but also how can we, you know, the next generation of scientists and entrepreneurs um, play a role in making investors interested in more cutting edge research. Yeah. And so within big pharma, you know, they're, they're largely self-funded, right? They don't need to seek external investment. They've got to keep shareholders happy. And that's a, you know, an additional challenge, right? But biotech, uh, you know, is, is really, you know, is really an investment-driven enterprise. And, you know, finding, you know, cultivating that, that investment and, and really pushing the envelope. Uh, you know, on the one hand, biotech investors are looking for innovation and the promise of remarkable returns, right? They're not typically looking to get two or three X return on an investment. They're trying to figure out what's that investment that's going to deliver a 50 or 100 X return. And so they, they wanna push the envelope. With that having been said though, 
They also like validation and they, you know, and so it's- Risk mitigation. It, it, <laughs> it's, it's a very interesting dynamic. Uh, you know, I've certainly had a fair exposure to investors, but I'd be, I'd be disingenuous if I said I really understood them, right? I think, uh, you know, people would always ask when I was at Lilly and sat on the governance, you know, what does this committee think? Well, the committee is not an entity. The committee is comprised of individuals. Well, I get the same question, what does the board want? Well, the board is also comprised of individuals. Investors are individuals. And so trying to understand them as individuals, what their needs are, what their interests are, what drives them, you know, what does it take to, to make that connection, right? What's the, what are the reasons to believe that will turn their head? And, and, and there's a really interesting dynamic, though, in an early stage company. You don't want to be following your investors, yet you don't you don't want to disregard what they say, it's right? It's a tricky dance. Right. With, with Flair Therapeutics, we came up with the thesis. We generated the data that gave us reasons to believe and then brought in investors who, who subscribed to that vision and wanted to invest. And so it wasn't like the investors came up with the idea and told us to go and implement it. But we also can't disregard what they're saying as well. And so it's a really interesting dynamic that exists. And, you know, and then the environment changes, right? When we, when we founded the company in 2019, the 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 investment environment and landscape was was effervescent right there was money available everywhere now people are not so much. a bit more cautious <laughs> and well the themes changed too and yeah i mean uh, it it seemed at that time too you know, a real focus around kind of the promise of the future early any early data would be useful. Platforms were really valued very heavily, and they still are. But now the winds have changed to, to be more focused on what do you have in the clinic right. and what's your clinical data readout going to look like in the near future. So yep. that environment, and I've seen, and you have too as well, The it cycles. You know, it, it, it Every really few years, it, it cycles. And while the biotech IPO market has closed, you know, here in the recent past, it will reopen with a new set of themes. And, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about what what you found with Flare so far, what got you excited about it. And if you wouldn't mind also just your experience at Third Rock, because I mean, in a way, everything you just described in terms of this um, needing to be cognizant of the investors and of the investors, but at the same time, of the science and of the scientists and being able to kind of walk in both fields. Talk a little bit about your experience. Yeah, well, you know, being able to join Third Rock as an EIR was was really a remarkable opportunity, right? Uh, you know, you get a period of time in which you get to come up with a new idea you know, working with a number of talented, smart, motivated colleagues and develop a thesis, you know, and then spend uh, six months or a year, you know, breaking that idea down into its fundamentals, discussing it with you know, 40 or 50 leading academics auditioning a half a dozen different versions of it, you know, building it up, tearing it down, figuring out how it's going to evolve. And, you know, when when I joined Third Rock, it did so 
along with Rob Sims, who'd worked with me. He was my head of R&D at Constellation. And Rob and I, you know, said, uh, we don't want to get back into transcriptional regulation. You know, been there, done that. Epigenetics is hard. Uh, But as time went by, I think we, we recognized that there was a tremendous opportunity with what was emerging in genetics and genomics, transcriptomics, what's happening on the structural biology side, what's happening in biochemistry and biophysics, that we thought there was a unique moment here for us to to broadly take on controlling transcription factors in a way that had never been done before. And when you look at the genetics, transcription factors are among the most genetically validated targets in oncology, but also more broadly in disease. So we felt like to a first approximation, we could say we don't have to do target discovery. We don't have to do target validation. Just look at all the transcription factors and their genetic validation, and you can start with a collection of valid targets. What we have to do is to enable the drug discovery. And what we realized was that transcription factor function is governed by confirmation. And we now had tools that would allow us to monitor and measure and understand transcription factor confirmation and how it's influenced by genetics and how that can be mimicked or overcome by small molecules to create therapeutic opportunities. So it just felt like an idea whose time was right and that we could realize this and do something important that hadn't been done yet, at least on a on a large scale. Effort. At this point in time, there were new tools, new discoveries, it, and the field had absolutely. moved probably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the field matured, and we were in a position to to take advantage of all of that collateral science that had been done and put some of our unique insights to play. How do you go about to you? You went from this mentality of saying "been there, done that" to now entertaining the idea and going after it. Can you talk a little bit about how you go from that "been there, done that" like a negative outlook towards? How do you keep your mindset to be able to be open to such things? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it, it's a great question. I'm not sure I have you know such a great answer. Uh, you know, as we we tried to stay objective and looked at a lot of different opportunities but it's a it's a unique period of time because you're thinking very broadly without constraints right and just asking what you know what questions out there remain important enough to be solved that my background and understanding might allow me to solve over you know a, a meaningful period of time and we kept coming back to interesting observations that brought us back to transcriptional regulation you know and and one could argue that Cancer is a set of diseases that are driven by aberrant transcription, right? There's there's a gene program that is not normal for a particular cell type that is has become dominant in the malignant setting. And so the ability to to either use that as a lens to identify vulnerabilities or to look for ways to re-regulate, redirect that misregulated transcription seemed like a great opportunity. And then with 
the emergence of very powerful computational, biochemical, biophysical, and structural tools, we felt like we had the necessary pieces to come up with with novel approaches. And we set out a series of experiments that we termed reasons to believe. And so we said, if if what we believe to be true is true, then we should be able to do X or Y or Z. And we convinced Third Rock to invest a small amount of money to enable some of those early experiments. And you know, I can remember Christoph Langauer, who was a partner at TRV at the time, asking us, well, you know, you've got four experiments, you know, one for four, two for four, three for four, four for four. Where's the bar, right? What's what's it going to take for us to be able to invest? And, you know, I don't think there was anyone who felt like one for four was good enough, although there were people if if it's the right one, maybe it is. But I don't think any of us expected us to go four for four, but we did. We we got four encouraging results. And again, my analogy of one more dune, right? These are not, you know, you get one result and you have a drug, but it was a reason to believe. And we were able to test key components of our approach toward transcription factors, and we got a result that was consistent that this approach was viable. And ultimately, that's what gave Third Rock and then eventually, you know, Nextech and Invis and Boxer and uh, Kasdan to also want to invest. And I mean, the biotech business is a series of reasons to believe proving the reason to believe and then moving on. And that really becomes the currency to raise that capital to run the next sets of experiments, if you will. Absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, scientists, entrepreneurs are always supposed to push the envelope. They're supposed to be innovative all the time. So would you encourage up and coming entrepreneurs to take on riskier positions within biotech? So taking the job within startup earlier in their career so they can bring that new energy, that new idea to that startup so that they can kind of see innovation at the ground level. You know, it's it's interesting. <clears throat> you know, the career path that I took joining pharma learning what I could within pharma and then moving to biotech really worked well. I, I can't have, you know, I, I can't convince myself that I'd have been more successful doing it otherwise, right? I think I think Lilly was a great environment for me to to learn. And I was exposed to a breadth of scientists and a diversity of thinking. And so that worked really well. But I've also seen how, seen the kinds of opportunities that are available to young folks taking their first role in this industry within a, within the biotech, right? It's, it's, it's a different, you have a higher level of ownership and responsibility, but less breadth of input, right? You don't have the colleague base. And so it's not like one is better than the other. I think when you're within, within pharma, it's very easy to just mail it in and go along for the ride. Within biotech, it's very easy to not have a sufficiently expansive focus to think about problems that go beyond the local one that you're looking at. And so you have to you have to behave differently. Uh, 
but both are valid experiences and you know i i think there's opportunities within them within them both you know as for you know people would always say well you know i don't want to i don't want to go to big pharma i'm going to get lost or i don't want to go to biotech because the biotech might disappear the day after tomorrow. I think both of those are valid, but there's mitigations against both, right? You within big pharma, you can do things that will stand out, right? There's an opportunity for excellence to to differentiate and within biotech if you're good and you're successful, even if your company is not, you have your own credibility and your career is not solely driven by the success of the company, right? There are many people who are who did good things. The company failed for a variety of different reasons and those people learned and built on that experience in order to create a new opportunity yeah, oftentimes for themselves. The team reforms, the board reforms, it's the same investors. And so in a, in a way, that's that mitigating it, it, feature exactly. on that pathway. You know, there there's there's safety in that community, right? And I think what we've got to build here in Chicago is a critical mass of community because unlike Boston, you know, you have you know, in Boston, you've got 900 other options where you can look for a fit. We've got to increase that number of options so that if my company struggles or isn't the right fit for me, that I have more, you know, more choices to make yeah. for that and, second. And and that's changed, you know, pretty substantially in the last couple of years, but a lot more room to run in that regard. I kind of liken it to, in many ways, in choosing to be part of a mature ecosystem, it's almost like choosing to be part of a larger organization. Because if one role fails, you can join a different department in the big pharma company, or in that mature ecosystem, you can join a different company. In a higher risk, early stage ecosystem that's building, you have potentially being an early mover for outsized returns and exposures, but you have, it's a, it's a steeper fall you know, because, you know, you don't have as much of a, a safety net. And so I think to some degree, it creates a certain type of environment for a certain type of phenotype while the ecosystem grows, evolves and de-risks over time. I think you start to see that ecosystem become a little less risky, if you will. And I think hopefully Chicago is moving in that it is moving in that direction where there are you have the abilities to have for certainly versus five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, we were starting Medichem and, and Advanced Life Sciences. I can assure you it was a lot, a lot more treacherous environment back at that time. So um, I think it's, it's changing, but, but needs to continue to evolve in that direction. I mean, I, I like your analogy there, John. And I also think in an earlier biotech ecosystem like we have in Chicago, you know, at an earlier stage in your career, you might actually have a larger opportunity here than you might have within a more established biotech environment like Boston, where there are, you know, a thousand other people competing for that and someone with more experience and deeper credentials might, you know, might be a more attractive candidate for that job. So. so I think that one of the things you're talking about in, as far as expertise is that ability to be able, I'm going back to the Sleeping Bear Dunes analogy of being able to see those different hills that might come up in this earlier stage biotech ecosystem of Chicago. Um, how do you really, to be able to be successful, you need to be able to predict and be able to see those challenges you're going to be facing. Can you talk a little bit more about what challenges you see in this Chicago ecosystem that if you were to join one of those early biotechs like you're describing, you would need to be aware of so that you could be successful as opposed to like we were talking about in other places where it might be more developed that um, if you were to fail, it's there's already a safety net there. I mean, it's, you know, these are really good questions. You know, I wish I had better answers. Uh, I mean, the reality is that 
there are no minor leagues in drug discovery. Everybody's, you know, ultimately the drugs are are going to advance on their merits and the the greater patient benefit is going to prevail, right? And so whether you're, you know, a new startup coming out of UIC, whether you're, you know, a company that's funded by, you know, Portal or Orbimed or whether you're coming out of TRV or TCG, you know, in Boston, the bar is still is still out there, right? And so, you know, you've got to do something, you've got to solve a problem that is worth solving that hasn't been solved or isn't on the way toward being solved. And you've got to do so in a in a commercially viable and relevant way, right? And you've got to have the resources, both financial and intellectual, scientific, in order to get you to the next stage where you can bring on additional, you know, to get you to your value inflection. And so those are the things that you've got to be looking at, right? You know, you know, going back to my Dunes analogy, if my next hurdle is to get down this dune and back up the following, I got to make sure that I can get there. And what I can't do is, is get stuck, you know, at the bottom or, you know, and not have and not have an approach that will actually get me to that next to that next high point. Right. And, you know, I think one of the hardest one of the hardest hurdles to overcome is is convincing yourself that you're solving a problem that won't be obviated by something for which you have no control over the time period in which you're looking to solve the problem, right? We were back at Constellation, we had a hypothesis that bet broma domain inhibition was important in subsets of multiple myeloma. But as as we were pursuing this preclinically, new therapeutic regimens were were coming to bear that were likely to change the way that disease was treated therapeutically that would likely render our drug either irrelevant or less relevant, right? We were solving a problem that for which there might be a superior solution that was emerging, right? You've got to look, you know, the old hockey analogy, and I'm not a hockey guy, but it's you got to skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is, right? You've and and that's one of the hardest things to do. And as I've evaluated, you know, potential startups or, you know, ideas from academics, the vast majority of them, I think, discount the competition that's not necessarily mechanistically related or not identical. And I think they underestimate the, you know, the the intensity and the diversity of competition that's out there. You know, and and so I think, you know, Karuna just announced very positive phase three data on, you know, on 
a muscarinic agonist for the treatment of, of schizophrenia. But Karuna's competition is not only other companies developing muscarinics, it's anyone really taking on schizophrenia or psychosis or bipolar, right? And, you know, you've got to look much more broadly at the competition. To me, that's the, you know, the place where I would be the most critical. I would want to be confident that, you know, people always worry, well, what happens if I fail, right? To me, the worst crime is if I succeed and no one cares, right? If I'm successful scientifically and there's no there there, there's no clinical opportunity, there's no commercial opportunity, that's a waste of of money, of time, of, you know, of talent, right? You got to work on a problem that hasn't been solved or isn't likely to be solved you know, that the world is still going to care about when you deliver a solution. There's a patient at the other end of it. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to wind down on this last question. Jim, you've been so generous with your time. It's been a wonderful, inspiring conversation. But uh, this uh, question that we end on is kind of a vision question. So, you know, you've spent your career um, really mastering the art and science of uh, medicinal chemistry, going back to your early days as a child, I would say in the kitchen and then with your chemistry <laughs> set, you know, developing what are known as small molecules. A lot of conventional drugs today were made using, you know, chemistry and small molecule approaches. Now we're kind of entering a phase where, you know, the, the, the biocentry, biology is uh, such an important tool and discoveries being made there as therapeutics, cell therapy, gene therapy, other approaches uh, to using biology, you know, to treat patients. What are your thoughts around the role of kind of medicinal chemistry in the future and the evolving landscape of biology-driven treatments, if, if that's a fair question? I, it, it's a fair question. I think it's a great question. I, I remember... Uh, when I joined Lilly in the 80s, and it was just at the beginning of, you know, the molecular biology revolution. And uh, we talked then about, about biologics, about molecular biology obviating medicinal chemistry. And that was, you know, 30 years ago. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, I'm, I'm excited about the ability to do genome editing. I'm excited about the ability to do cell therapies, about antibody therapies. Uh, I think what, what I also see, though, is a broader definition of chemistry, right? You know, I look at biology versus chemistry as a continuum. And we're, we're taking a broader view of chemistry and extending it to more complex systems that we often use tools of biology to drive, but they are fundamentally chemical processes. And so I see a world in which we become increasingly, you know, modality agnostic and really operate along this continuum. These hybrid therapies, I, I remember Lou Youngheim when I was back at Lilly was making some of the first ADCs, you know, antibody drug conjugates. I remember, you know, some of those early pioneering efforts they were crude and primitive but but conceptually they have now been realized in meaningful therapeutics you know proximity induced therapeutics you know with all of these bifunctional degraders you know i think i think it's a brave new world yeah. out there and i think this 
this dichotomy between chemistry and biology in many ways is a false one. Yeah. And I think they are different ends of a spectrum, but it's still a, a continuum. Yeah. I think my understanding of chemistry has made me a pretty decent biologist. And my understanding of biology makes me a better chemist. Yeah. And so I don't I don't see it as a I don't see it as a choice. I see it as, you know, let's 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 really try and focus holistically and bring more molecular precision to biology, more molecular precision to medicine, to patient selection, stratification, to, you know, assessment of disease progression and efficacy. I think all of these things benefit from a deeper molecular understanding, but the problems are biological in nature. Those are the problems worth solving. I love your vision, and I love uh, taking on the brave new world with you as we take our next steps. And uh, thanks so much to our fellows for joining today, and thanks to our audience for a great show. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 